my friends, welcome to this inaugural edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you from the sunny climes of western Japan on this first day of June 2007. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of Corbett Report Radio. I am your host for tonight's broadcast, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you as always from the sunny climes of western Japan. So welcome one and all to tonight's broadcast. It's great to have you back. So thank you so much for joining us tonight on this Friday night edition of Corbett Report Radio. And as listeners of Corbett Report Radio will know by now if they've been listening to this broadcast for any length of time now, Friday nights are reserved for Friday night highlight editions of the broadcast. That is to say, we dip into the archives of my four and a half years of work at CorbettReport.com to dredge up some of the golden oldies from that work and take a listen to them. And that's exactly what we were just doing there. Believe it or not, that young man you were just listening to was none other than myself. That's right. That was from the very first episode, episode one of the Corbett Report podcast, way back in June 2007, four and a half years ago now. And yes, that was me. I Believe it or not, that was actually my voice, and that was... Basically, just like what episode one was like way back then. Now, personally, I'm a little bit embarrassed when I think of episode one and some of the early episodes of the podcast and think that there are probably a lot of people, when they encounter my work for the first time, they probably go back and do the the Corbett Report in chronological order, starting with episode one. And I shudder to think that that's the case because, uh, well, how can I put this diplomatically for my old self? Well, the early episodes of the podcast and the early interviews and videos that I did, well, probably not my most technically proficient stuff, and uh, and probably not a good introduction to my pro- podcast, I think. But, uh, well, I understand there are a lot of people who like to start from the beginning. At any rate, that, that was episode one, and uh, like, once again, that was from June of 2007. And that was from a brand new DVD that ha- I'm just putting out this weekend. I've already got some orders in, and the uh, the very first ep- uh, the very first orders are going to be shipping out off this Monday. And this new DVD is a data disc. It's a data DVD, i.e., the type of disc that you play in your computer, and you can uh, just download files. And the files are all of the interviews, podcast episodes, articles, and videos, all of the work from CorbettReport.com from its inception in mid-2007 until the end of 2008. So a year and a half worth of material. Uh, We're talking about 69 podcast episodes, 56 interviews, 177 articles, and 61 videos. So, literally, we are talking about hundreds of media on DVD, all for the first time on DVD, in one disc that you just pop into your computer and play right there, and then you can just drag and drop the files onto your computer system as needed. So, a very, very handy uh, little disc, I would say. And uh, it's all available for purchase from my website for 5,000 Japanese yen, which is a little over $50 US. So... Once again, it's literally hundreds of hours of media, 
everything put out by the Corbett Report from 2007 until 2008. So I certainly hope that uh, that you will take the time to check that out. This this is available from CorbettReport.com slash support. That's CorbettReport.com slash S-U-P-P-O-R-T. So I hope you'll go and check that out. And tonight we're going to be listening to excerpts from that very disc. So stay right there. We'll be right back with more Corbett Report Radio right after these messages. back, my friends, to tonight's edition of Corbett Report Radio. Of course, I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and it's great to have you back on the broadcast this evening, and of course, tonight is Friday night, so we are doing Friday Night Highlights, where we dip into the archives of my four and a half years of work at CorbettReport.com for some of the, the highlights of some of the things that I've done in the past, from my articles and interviews and videos and podcast episodes that I've been doing now for quite a long time, and tonight we're dipping specifically into 2007-2008, some of my earliest work, which is now available on a brand new DVD, available for purchase right now at CorbettReport.com support, and it contains all of the podcast episodes, all of the interviews, all of the articles, all of the videos that I did between 2007 and 2008, so literally hundreds of hours of media on one DVD. Uh, one data DVD that you can pop into your computer and you can download the files to your computer. And I would just like to stress that all of these files are freely available for download on CorbettReport.com. All of them are free free access to the public, so you can download them at will at anytime you want. You don't need to buy this DVD, but if you want to support my work and support what I'm doing and have all of these files in one handy location, I do suggest people to get this DVD and to burn copies and hand them out to people. I think it's a great resource to use. As it, as I say, it contains hundreds of hours of media, all sorts of different things on all sorts of different topics. So let's go to our first highlight for tonight, going all the way back to episode 47 of my podcast on Problem Reaction Solution, which I think many people might know is the idea that uh, that of behind false flag terrorism, for instance. Why did the, uh, the elite cause something to happen? Why did they engineer a problem? Well, in order to get the solution that they want. So, for example, why would they attack themselves on 9-11? Well, in order to gain all of the, the momentum for the police state that that, that garners and in, in order to allow them to justify going into these wars of foreign aggression, etc., etc., now, this goes back to an, a philosopher called George Friedrich Wilhelm Hegel. And in episode 47 of my podcast, I have an excerpt from a conversation I had with Alan Watt about this old, old concept. Uh, we'll go to the caller in Japan. It's James. Are you there? Hello, Mr. Watt. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I'm doing some research for my podcast right now at CorbettReport.com, and I wanted to draw on your vast historical knowledge to ask you about GWF Hegel. Now, your audience is probably familiar with the idea of problem-reaction-solution, 
by which the ruling oligarchs manage to move society in whatever direction they wish by playing both sides of a crisis and then presenting their phony solution, which, of course, is just their, their way of pushing society in whatever direction they want. And this is usually traced back to Hegel and the Hegelian dialectic, the thesis, antithesis, leads to synthesis. But I suspect this knowledge is probably part of the ancient knowledge by which the oligarchs have been ruling over free humanity for centuries, if not millennia. And I was wondering, what can you tell us about Hegel and where he might have gotten the idea for the dialectic? Well, Hegel himself belonged to uh, Masonic orders, uh, Rosicrucian orders, and he was heavily backed by, uh, to, uh, paid just to, he's actually quite mad in some respects. He took um, fits where he'd have to be locked up for a while inside his own apartment. But he was looked after by some very rich and powerful people uh, who sponsored him uh, to sit and write this kind of material. But you're quite right. Uh, he didn't come up with the idea. Uh, his whole thing was to try and write in such a way for a new time, a new period, where it would fit together with the coming Superman. That's behind all of these writings. Is the, the coming of the new Superman, which was a, an actual belief system of the Rosicrucian society. It still is. Uh, that there'd be an old man, and through evolution, through scientific means, he could create a new type of uh, perfected superhuman. And the Germans also took that off into the Superman idea. And uh, uh, you, as I say, ancient society is perfectly well understood because all it is is military strategy. Uh, military strategy, uh, they plan a battle. The enemy often doesn't know what's going to occur. Uh, they, they say, when we move here, the enemy will then react this way, and then hopefully through the conflict, we'll get them to go that way. That's, that's your uh, synthesis. It's always the synthesis that they're after, and they use, use, they use an action made by them followed by a counter-reaction made by, by the opposing force and then they get to where they want to go in the first place. And that was the whole idea of setting up uh, the, the Soviet system and uh, to eventually blend, as Lenin talked, with the West. Uh, there are no sides in this in actuality. Uh, they knew there's different mentalities within human nature, so they would give us sides to join. Classes were very important to join one side or another. But there really was one, one hand at the top behind this um, because it falls under economics and it's to do with basically um, the principle of materialism. Both capitalism and communism deal solely in the material world uh, with materials and economics. That's what they're based on. And so the, the idea was through uh, giving you conflict through oppositions, you will come to an understanding, then a merger, and out of that, you have your synthesis, which is to be the new world order, or as Bertrand Russell Collie said, a world run by experts and bureaucracies. Well, that's exactly what we have. But, yeah, Hegel himself was put there, as many of these people are, and sponsored and paid handsomely by very rich, powerful people. Absolutely. In fact, your description of Hegel being sort of um, locked up in a room and, you know, handled by people above him sounds to me exactly like Marx and the way he was also handled by rich industrialists. You'll find this with all of them. You see, how you make a star is quite easy. Uh, you, you make a star by 
telling the people you're going to bring forward the star. And you build it up and build it up in the media. In those days, it was newspapers and magazines. They did the same with, with Darwin. No one had heard of Darwin. He was unknown. And they wanted to make him a star. And when he eventually came out with his, his book, he was already made, you see. So they, they built it up by waving the wand. Uh, the public anticipation was geared up. And suddenly he's a star. And then he's boosted by the institutions that already and the foundations that already were running the world in those days. And they make it so exciting. It's meant to grab the youth, especially with, um, with Hegel. And even Nietzsche was the same. Nietzsche was very, very similar, in fact, in temperament. And um, he also wrapped in the whole Superman theory and the evolution of mankind. That all goes back to Darwinism, which is a chief, again, a chief belief in all high masonry and the high, uh, what we call, occultic side of it, of which really um, it does exist. It's not the little boys at the bottom uh, with the aprons on. It's the big boys at the top with the real story. And uh, it's, all, it's all based on materialism, the concept of material world uh, without um, any deity uh, looking over you. Um, this new world order, in fact, will be the worst and the most severe system we've ever seen. We saw that, uh, that a touch of that in the Soviet system, uh, where they were utterly ruthless. They wiped out millions of people over many, many years, and uh, they went after all religions. Uh, it's worse under Khrushchev. Khrushchev persecuted all churches, violent more so than Stalin ever did. And uh, there's no trial. You're just simply rounded up and killed. And this new world order, we can see it already, there's no moral background behind it whatsoever. It's based on materialism, a psychopathic-type system, and where might is right, and it will be horrific when it all comes down. So if this knowledge already existed centuries before Hegel, why then was it necessary to get Hegel to actually bring this to the public domain? Why is that such an important part Mostly of it? Mostly books are written for recruits. It, it changes the mindset of, of thousands and thousands of youngsters who get caught up in it and excited, and they become willing workers towards it to help bring it, a society as is envisaged, into actual existence. So to a certain extent, then, people like Marx, who took Hegel's ideas, may have actually been, in their own mind, really sort of acolytes of that idea, rather than to some ancient esoteric idea. That too, but they, they also did attend the Masonic Lodges. Um, a good book to read is one written by Trotsky. It's called My Life. And in that book, he tells you that he joined the, the Masonic Lodge and that everyone in Russia, uh, who was anybody, belonged to it at that time. Very interesting. Thank you very much for all of that information, Mr. Watt. And thanks for coming. Alan Watt and his vast historical knowledge can be accessed at CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. There are a number of leads to follow from that conversation, but as always, I encourage my listeners to use this information as the basis for their own research. Please get out there, get active, and see how you can apply this principle to make light of current events and historical events. There's no doubt that this is one of the methods through which the masters of war, the puppeteers behind the scenes, control society in their attempt to herd us into the new world order. But the amazing thing is that by getting informed and by working to get others informed of these key manipulation techniques, they lose their power. 
This system can only work if we're ignorant of its existence. By understanding how these ideas have been ready presented to us in order for a certain solution to be the natural outcome, we can break free of this left-right controlled paradigm thinking, which will only ever lead us in one direction, that of enslavement, not, as Hegel would have it, the realization of the spirit's freedom. Once again, a blast from the past, an excerpt from my very old podcast episode number 47, Problem Reaction Solution, again available on this brand new DVD from CorbettReport.com. Let's take a short break. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. You are tuned into Corbett Report Radio here on this Friday night highlight edition of the broadcast. And tonight we are dipping into the archives for some information and articles and videos and interviews and other highlights from CorbettReport.com's glorious past, looking specifically at 2007-2008 and highlighting some of the works that you can find on my brand new DVD, the Corbett Report Data DVD Volume 1. Again, available for purchase right now from CorbettReport.com. And again, all of these files are freely available for download if you don't have the money to support CorbettReport.com. And let's move along to an article because that is uh, one of the other things that I think is often neglected from the work that I've done. I've written, as I say, 177 articles here available on this DVD from 2007 and 2008, including some hidden gems that a lot of people don't know about. So let's just highlight one of those. It's from February 14th, 2008, Valentine's Day of 2008. And I wrote this article entitled The Snitch State, Stasi-style secret police system forming in Canada, Britain, U.S. Quote, Jennifer Stoddart, the Privacy Commissioner of Canada, has given her own valentine to Canadian citizens, a 48-page report warning them that the RCMP, Canada's national police force, is keeping thousands of files on regular citizens in secret databases which cannot be seen by the accused. The news is perhaps unsurprising, given that the McDonald Commission reported in 1981 that the RCMP had been involved in all manner of illegal activity in their attempts to spy on Canadian citizens, including breaking into citizens' homes without warrants and even conducting electronic surveillance of a member of Parliament. One of the many disturbing facets of Stoddart's report are the examples she cites of information for these secret files coming from citizen informants. In one case, a man was put into the secret database because a resident of his daughter's school neighborhood saw him entering a rooming house and, believing drugs were involved, called the police. The police investigation concluded that the man had only stepped out of his car to have a cigarette, but the file was still in the National Security Data Bank seven years later. Another incident cited in the Stoddart report involved a neighbor who saw two men carrying something that resembled a large drum wrapped in canvas into their house. Police were called to investigate but found nothing resembling the reported item, yet the data still was still sitting in a top-secret databank five years later. As Stoddart points out in the CBC story on the report, 
This is potentially disastrous for the individuals named in the files because it could potentially affect someone trying to obtain an employment, security clearance, or impede an individual's ability to cross the border. This report follows on the heels of news from London that a man was arrested, fingerprinted, and had his DNA stored in the British DNA database because a passerby mistook his MP3 player for a gun. What these seemingly disparate reports point to is a growing movement to turn the citizens of these so-called free and democratic nations into a self-regulating secret police, saving the government the hassle of keeping tabs on everyone by delegating the duty to an unwitting public duped by a phony war on terror. That this is part of a concerted effort on the part of the authorities to indicate, inculcate paranoia in the public is suggested by this ridiculous police training video from Michigan, teaching people how to be good informants, report on everyone, everywhere, or doing anything. And then there's a video to that very uh, Michigan police training video, followed by this text. What this video and these recent news items highlight is a harmonized effort to turn the myth of the war on terror around and aim its machinery at the general public. The controlled corporate media has played along by dutifully regurgitating government propaganda that Al-Qaeda has recruited thousands of homegrown terrorists. Now that we know anyone, anywhere, at any time is potentially a terrorist, it is our civic duty to report everything we see to the police. The historical parallels to the Stasi should be obvious. The Stasi were the dreaded secret police of East Germany, who had one out of every seven citizens of the country working for them as secret informants. What is perhaps most surprising is that the U.S. Department of Homeland Security hired the ex-Stasi chief and engineer of the Stasi police state as a consultant in 2004, shortly before they brought in a program known as Highway Watch, which has spent millions of dollars teaching tens of thousands of long-distance truckers how to spot terrorists on the road. The hiring of the ex-chief of the Stasi to consult for Homeland Security also coincided coincided with a 2004 White House push to recruit over 15,000 citizen informants to help counterterrorism investigations, and all this effort, despite the fact that terrorist-related cases account for less than 0.01% of all Homeland Security investigations. Marcus Wolf, now deceased, and his Stasi shadow loom large over the Homeland Security Department he helped shape. Look for the number of false accusations from anonymous citizen informants to increase under the watchful eye of these government paranoia programs. End quote. Well, once again, that is an article that I wrote back in 2008 about a very disturbing trend of citizen informants, and unfortunately we've only seen those police state trends increasing everywhere over the last few years, and people who saw my recent report on the Canadian RCMP and the the G20 spying that they were doing during the G20 conference in Toronto last year will know that, unfortunately, that report was really just prescient about the, the various ways people were being spied on by the RCMP. And, uh, and unfortunately, it just continues to go on, whether in Canada or America or in any of the other so-called Western democracies. But on that note, let's take a short break, and we will be right back with more of Corbett Report highlights right here on Corbett Report Radio. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth.
right, friends, welcome back. James Corbett here from CorbettReport.com, and tonight on Corbett Report Radio, we're dipping into the archives for some Friday night highlights, and tonight we're specifically looking at highlights from 2007 and 2008, way back when, when I was uh, still a young man, younger than I am today. And we're uh, looking at specifically at that era because I have a brand-new DVD available for purchase from CorbettReport.com in which uh, you can find all of the articles, all of the interviews, all of the videos, all of the podcast episodes, hundreds of hours of media on one data DVD that you can pop into your computer and download the files. So I hope that people will tr- support my work by doing that. And next we're going to listen to an interview that I conducted almost exactly four years ago, back in December of 2007, when I talked to Neil Carmen, uh, a Ph.D. in botany from the University of Texas, who is also on the uh, Texas Air Control Board and with the, uh, the Lone Star chapter of the Sierra Club. And back in December of 2007, we had a very wide-ranging conversation about GMOs and their, well, their, their, the safety issues posed by these genetically modified food products an issue that is still very much with us with us here four years later in 2011. So let's take a listen to that conversation with Dr. Neil Carmen, or at least the beginning of it, that I conducted, again, back in December of 2007. Well, um, I have a background, uh, a bachelor's, master's, and Ph.D. in uh, biological sciences, and I've studied a great deal of molecular biology, biochemistry, and genetics, and participated in uh, genetics research uh, a number of years ago, not genetic engineering research, but uh, classical breeding. And um, it was over 10 years ago that I met some um, um, molecular biologists uh, and genetic engineers who were expressing uh, serious um, ethical concerns about this uh, research in uh, developing genetically engineered organisms uh, because there were certain risks involved in uh, transferring new uh, genetic material in in an artificial manner uh, in laboratories uh, that uh, when this was shared with me, it, uh, I immediately sensed that, that this technology, while the uh, biotech industry claims it's very, you know, totally beneficial, there are many, many uh, unknown consequences uh, that could result from uh, this type of gene splicing from, you know, uh, different species uh, into plants and animals and trees and so forth. So um, I began to speak about it publicly in 1996, and I've been doing so now for 11 years, and my concerns have not abated. They have become uh, more uh, more uh, serious that... Um, that this technology has many, many hazards to human health, uh, to the environment, um, to um, to wildlife and the organisms on the planet. So uh, this technology has not been demonstrated to be safe. So anyway, uh, that's why I agreed in 2000 to serve on the Sierra Club's uh, National Genetic Engineering Committee as a scientist and have uh, I've written and spoken at extensively about the um, human hazards and environmental hazards of genetically engineered organisms. I see. Well, you, you mentioned some of the ethical concerns you have, and also I think a lot of my listeners would share the unease about the idea of genetic engineering. But let's get into some of the scientific specifics. Um, what scientific studies have been conducted concerning, for example, GMO food safety? 
Well, there's actually been very, very little in the way of actual food safety studies um, because um, I think the industry doesn't want to see anything negative be published. And so whatever negative results they've had, we don't know if they shared them with the uh, federal government, the Food and Drug Administration, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, but there's there's not a great deal in terms of actual food safety studies. There's a tremendous lack. We, we need uh, food safety studies, uh, but, you know, uh, when you start talking about testing humans, um, I think, you know, we'd have to start with laboratory animals first, and there's not been uh, many of those studies. Um, there was, uh, there has been one done um, by a Dr. Arpad uh, Putsai, and he uh, actually uh, thought he was going to be a, a big supporter of genetically engineered foods, and so he tested some uh, GMO potatoes on some laboratory animals. And he, uh, after you know a short period of time, um, uh, in which he fed uh, one group of, of animals these um, genetically engineered potatoes, and then a control group was fed regular potatoes, he stopped the experiment and he um, examined uh, the organisms and he was shocked at what he found uh, in the blood and the internal organs of the um, laboratory animals fed the GMO potatoes. So he was alarmed at this. Um, and uh, anyway, and then there's been a study in Russia by Dr. Irina Ermakova in which she looked at... Um, uh, feeding genetically engineered soy to uh, laboratory rats. And she, again, found some very alarming results. Uh, the young uh, laboratory uh, rats were, were, you know, very undersized, and many of them died. So I, I, she has uh, attempted to speak and publish about this, but uh, what's happened is that the biotech industry now, companies like Monsanto and others do not like to see any kind of negative evidence published. So they have attacked people like Dr. Ermakova and Dr. Putsai and others, uh, even here in the United States. Uh, so uh, it's, this has had a chilling effect on people who want to do research to see if there are uh, negative consequences of uh, genetically engineered foods. I see. Um, you mentioned Monsanto is one of the companies that um, are working to, to shelve this research. Um, can you get a little bit into Monsanto's position in this uh, debate? Well, there's a number of large companies uh, in the U.S. and worldwide that have been working in this area, and they've changed names, but Monsanto is one of the leaders. They've uh, worked with scientists uh, inside their company and people in uh, research institutions and universities in the U.S. and around the world. And uh, so they've been developing these genetically engineered crops, such as uh, corn, uh, BT, Roundup-ready corn, Roundup-ready soy, <laughs> Roundup-ready canola, and Roundup-ready cotton. And, um, and Roundup-ready Roundup is an herbicide, glyphosate, that Monsanto's had to patent on for a long time, although I think the patent is, has run out. But anyway, so they've been inserting uh, genes, new genes, into uh, corn, soy, canola, and cotton, and others, in order to have re herbicide resistance for 
these crops, and therefore the farmers can go into the fields where the Roundup Ready corn has been planted, and they can spray the herbicide and kill weeds because weeds are a big problem for farmers. And uh, so farmers have to fight the weeds and keep them uh, under control and kill them, or they will, you know, you, you don't want your, your crop turning, you know, being harvested with a lot of weeds. So weed control is very vital to farmers, and um, being able to, you know, spray with an herbicide like glyphosate uh, and not kill your crop, uh, farmers, you know, many farmers have, you know, kind of jumped on board this, this technology. And so they've been uh, buying uh, these. These are patented seeds that Monsanto has patented because of the novel uh, genetic uh, material that they've inserted um, and that they own a patent rights to. And so every year that farmers have to buy these Roundup Ready corn, soy, cotton, and canola seeds from Monsanto, the farmers aren't allowed to do any seed saving. Uh, so Monsanto is, you know, making uh, billions of dollars uh, in doing this because so many farmers in the U.S. and uh, Canada, Argentina, are planting uh, large acreages of these crops. Uh, today in the U.S., uh, probably uh, 70 to 80 percent of the corn and the soy crop is uh, Roundup Ready or BT, um, which is a um, uh, basically a, a you know a protein that helps. Um, well, anyway, let me go on and just point out that there's just huge um, millions and millions of acres of these crops that have been planted in the U.S. Um, the U.S. is one of the leading nations with genetically engineered crops. Um, so anyway, uh, so Monsanto has a huge, huge investment in this, and they're continuing to develop uh, new crops uh, such as um, genetically engineered alfalfa, Roundup Ready alfalfa, that is, also wheat. But uh, so far, uh, the wheat has not actually been um, on the market because there's tremendous resistance worldwide, and uh, there was a lawsuit uh, resulting last spring against the Roundup Ready alfalfa in which it was determined uh, that there should be some kind of an environmental impact statement uh, because it can contaminate um, the organic uh, we, uh, the organic alfalfa. And then the large amount of spraying by the uh, herbicide um, glyphosate, Roundup Ready, could have environmental impacts. So... Anyway, um, that kind of in a nutshell um, is, you know, what Monsanto's been doing. But they've been intimidating um, a lot of farmers and filing uh, lawsuits. Uh, and so there's a whole um, another aspect to this that gets a little bit legally complicated. Yes, I understand that uh, Percy Schmeiser in Canada has actually launched his own lawsuit against Monsanto for their crops having uh, infected his field. Uh, do you know anything yes, uh, about the Percy Schmeiser case? Uh, yes, uh, he's a Canadian uh, canola farmer, and uh, he's been doing this for, I think, over 50 to 60 years. Um, he's uh, he's well into his 70s, and I've met him. Um, he claimed that he was not uh, growing or planting Monsanto's uh, Roundup Ready canola. But then he noticed one day when he was spraying some uh, Roundup Ready herbicide on some canola plants that uh, he thought they were volunteers 
that some of the volunteers did not die. So he concluded, and he had far, um, friends or neighbors who were farmers and, and friends of his who were apparently planting it. And he uh, believes that the uh, contamination uh, of his property uh, occurred from either volunteer seeds or possibly from pollen. But he was sued by Monsanto. And um, anyway, he um, uh, he lost the case, although he wasn't required to pay Monsanto any legal fees or penalties. He now has a, a lawsuit of his own against Monsanto for um, contamination of his farm in, in um, I think Manitoba, Canada, um, from uh, Monsanto's Roundup Ready canola. And I don't know where what the status of that is. I see. Could you elaborate on one point? You mentioned that uh, Monsanto owns the patent for Roundup Ready uh, seeds. How can a company own a patent for a seed or a life form? Well, in uh, 1980, there was a United States Supreme Court decision uh, over a, um, it was a genetically engineered uh, bacterium that uh, was designed to help clean up oil spills. And the U.S. Supreme Court agreed that uh, the um, genetically engineered bacterium uh, designed to clean up oil spills could receive a patent as a unique organism. And so that kind of began to open the floodgates in the United States uh, and interest around the world in patenting of life forms that have had the new, uh, some, some new or additional genetic material added um, in the laboratory. So um, anyway, so this is what's been happening then in, in the 1990s, especially with uh, Monsanto's um, various genetically engineered uh, crops, because they own the patents on certain genetic material that, uh, that, that this is novel genetic material that they insert into these plants and then they have a genetically engineered crop, although it takes them a number of years and it costs millions of dollars and thousands and thousands of research experiments uh, in the laboratory and greenhouses are necessary before they are eventually successful. Um, so patenting is a big issue because, you know, uh, they can take uh, something from a bacterium and isolate it, and then they can inject it and uh, engineer it into corn or cotton or any plant. Um, and so they're moving. One of the concerns that I have about genetic engineering is the fact that they're, uh, with the crops, they could take a gene from a fish that helps, like the flounder, uh, survive at cold temperatures in the oceans um, or in cold freshwater lakes, and they can take um, uh, a protein that helps the flounder you know, survive those cold temperatures, and they can isolate it, the gene for that protein, and they can insert that artificially into uh, like a tomato and make a tomato then, a genetically engineered tomato, that can survive uh, somewhat colder temperatures than uh, an ordinary tomato, an organic tomato. But um, we, we haven't done, uh, you know, any feeding studies um, uh, on laboratory animals and people to know what the consequences could be um, if there's changes in the nutrition, if there's unwanted toxins or allergens. Um, 
So uh, I'm very concerned that there are serious risks with this technology where you could have um, new allergens appear in the food. Uh, you could have a new toxin, uh, a protein. You could have potentially a carcinogenic agent, something that might cause cancer. Um, so, um, And even the Food and Drug Administration, actually, in the early 1990s, before these crops were finally approved, was going through some internal reviews, and they had um, a group of um, scientists uh, at the FDA who raised internal concerns, and those memos were made public um, a number of years later that uh, various um, uh, toxicologists, epidemiologists, compliance officers, scientists at the FDA who expressed serious concerns that these genetically engineered foods should go through comprehensive testing toxicologically, nutritionally, to see if they might pose a new hazard to uh, consumers. Once again, that was Dr. Neil Carmen from December of 2007 talking about some of the fundamental issues surrounding genetically modified organisms and their safety or lack thereof. And that's just the beginning of the conversation. You can listen to the full conversation. I'll put in the link at CorbettReport.com slash radio so you can go and download the entire conversation for yourself. But we'll return just after these messages uh, once, he- once again here on Corbett Report Radio. Welcome back to the broadcast, friends. James Corbett here from CorbettReport.com. And, of course, you are tuned into Corbett Report Radio right here on the Republic Broadcasting Network. And I want to thank you once again for joining me for another week of incredible broadcasts here on Corbett Report Radio. We had some great guests. So I certainly hope that you've uh, been tuned in with us and that you can continue to tune in with us next week for more exciting guests and interesting broadcasts, which I have lined up for you next week. But here in the final few minutes of this Friday night edition of the broadcast, I just want to once again take the time to thank everyone who has been writing in via the contact form on CorbettReport.com with your feedback and with your, uh, with your questions and all of that. I do genuinely appreciate all the feedback that I get, but of course uh, I get so much I can't really respond to everyone individually, but I do try to read everything that comes in. So once again, thank you for all of your links and tips and questions and feedback and, and all of that. It's greatly appreciated. And of course, I am just a, an independent web journalist and I really am funded just by people like yourself and you out there really do make the Corbett Report and all of the work that I've done here for the last four and a half years possible. So once again, all of the things that we've been listening to tonight, all of the podcast episodes and articles and interviews and videos from 2007 and 2008 are available freely for download from the general public at CorbettReport.com. You don't need to be a subscriber or anything of the sort. You can go and download whatever you want for free from the, from the, uh, from the archives there on CorbettReport.com. So I certainly suggest if you are strapped for cash and you don't have the, the means or the ability to donate to CorbettReport.com, 
please don't. I don't want anyone who, who doesn't have the means to uh, to feel obligated to do so. And, of course, all of this information is there for free on CorbettReport.com. But for those who do have the ability to to chip in and to contribute to the cause, I greatly, greatly appreciate it. And not only do I have this Corbett Report DVD, this new data DVD, which contains, as I say, hundreds of hours of media on one DVD that you can just pop into your computer, but I also have uh, a new thing for subscribers. I have a subscription fee, uh, a subscription button on, on CorbettReport.com at CorbettReport.com slash support where you can contribute. You can chip in 100 Japanese yen per month. That's about $1.40 a month. That really is the, the basic bare bones of what actually keeps me going. It's a tiny, tiny amount, but when there are enough people doing it, it does add up to, to a larger amount. So I very much appreciate the people who have been doing that for many months now, donating uh, about a dollar forty a month to keep me going. So I've just started a brand new e-newsletter that I'm sending around to the email addresses of everyone who has signed up to be a Corporate Report subscriber through that subscription PayPal button. And uh, so everyone who is on that list should have by now received the December issue of the Corbett Report subscriber, my brand new e-newsletter with news and analysis, recommended reading and viewing, uh, uh, general highlights of the Corbett Report, and a subscriber-exclusive video, and a 50% discount on all of the DVDs at CorbettReport.com, including this brand new Corbett Report DVD. That's right, it's 5,000 yen for the general public, but for subscribers to the Corbett Report, it's only 2,500 yen. That's about 25 or $30 in that range. So you get 50% off just for subscribing to the Corbett Report. Once again, I couldn't do this without all of you out there, and I very much look forward to one and all joining me again for another week of broadcasts next week here on Corbett Report Radio. Until then, thanks for listening, and take care. <laughs>